Bruce. I'm Mike Heslin. And I'm Errol Yabakay. And today we'll be talking about the various summits that President Biden is engaging in this week, including the G7, the NATO summit, the EU summit, as well as the bilateral meeting with Vladimir Putin. Uh, and we, we've got a really excellent guest to walk us through all of that. Helping us unpack all of the summitry and communiques and everything in between is Zona Sien Rui, Associate Fellow with the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Yeah, this is a really fun conversation, really wide-ranging, as are the summits themselves and the, the topic areas we're covering. And Dona Cien is, is brilliant and funny and uh, well-researched and I think just all the things that we aspire to reach with News and Bruce. And she happens to be Belgian, and so we had a Belgian beer theme to the night, which I think, if it were up to me, would be the, the theme of every News and Bruce. But you know what? If we're going to talk about European symmetry, no better way to do so than with a Belgian and Belgian beers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, with that, let's get into it. Welcome, everyone. Today, we're talking about uh, some really exciting foreign policy stuff. We're going to be talking about a whole medley a veritable smorgasbord, a potpourri of summits with copious communiques uh, on this Joe Biden's first international trip as president. So we're, we're really excited to have Dona Sien Rui, Associate Fellow uh, with the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, here to, to help us make sense of it all. So welcome, Dona Sien. How are you? Hi, everyone. I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good, good. Uh, so we're going to get more into the, the week of pomp and symmetry in a bit um, after we do our, our first round. But I was wondering if you could give our folks a little bit of a teaser of why people should be excited for the discussion to come today. Well, this is just my take on it. But I think especially if a lot of your listeners are on the U.S. side, it's exciting because it's the first big trip for this new president and it was really an opportunity to say, America is back, exclamation point, and just really visit allies that have felt, let's say, a little bit abandoned for the last four years. And there were many of them at all these many, many meetings. And they touched on a ton of different topics that we're going to go over. So I hope everyone's as excited as I am. I heard Errol, I think, call out smorgasbords and potpourri. And so... Um, we're going to start with our brews of the evening. Um, so, uh, Errol, do you want to kick us off? What brews are you working with tonight? Yeah, I, I like brews. Um, in fact, I am rocking a St. Bernardus Apt 12 tonight. Hold on, let me open here. Wait, wait for it, wait that for it. Wonderful, wonderful choice, Errol. Oh, yes. That's a great sound. For listeners, new, that is... New sound effect to news and brews. Really impressive. News... <laughs> That was not added by the producer later. That was, in fact, a real bottle opening. And I'm pouring it somewhat heretically into a Vestleteran glass because I don't have a St. Bernardus glass. Even though, fun fact, I did actually visit the St. Bernardus Brewery um, when, with my then two-year-old when we were biking from brewery to brewery and last time we were in Belgium in the before times. So, Mike, it's a St. Bernardus Ab 12 I would call it a little bit more of a, a fruit forward 
Belgian monk beer. You know, don't call it a trapiste for those that follow Belgian beer. Trapistes are only made by by certain monks. Um, I don't know the difference. Don't really care. But it's sort of like champagne. Don't call it unless it is. Um, and you know, I did some sleuthing on their on their website, and it says uh, that this beer in particular packs a formidable taste punch. Uh, and after having had a quick sip here, I would uh, definitely agree. So, Mike, what are you working with? All right, I am also going Belgian tonight uh, in honor of our esteemed guest. I've got a Duval Belgian Golden Ale. So here we go. Strong. And we'll do, we'll do an honorary. Strong is right, Errol. You know, this is, as they say, the, uh, the keynote Belgian strong ale against which all others are measured. I'll just give you some initial thoughts. Um, you've got strong hop forward flavor, but just a real smoothness and and consummate balance at the end too you know i think in in some ways Errol, you are what you drink <laughs> love me a good consummate balance that's that's you know that's so you don't Sien, what are you working with tonight tonight i well i have to apologize for the listeners i've already opened my beer so there will be no sound effect on my end no sound effect i'm so sorry i couldn't wait tonight i am drinking a shoof which is a beer, I don't know, maybe people know it's like a sort of little gnome on the beer is the symbol of it in a shoof glass because that happens to be the only beer glass I have here. It's a, I would say it's a blonde beer and it's medium hoppy. Uh, it's very fresh in the summer and it's one of my favorite beers. It's a bit strong, it's around 8%. So don't go knocking back a bunch if you're hoping to be functional. I will say also your pronunciation was fine. It's Duvel and Saint Bernard. And are there are there different pronunciations based on whether you're you know in the sort of Flemish Walloon versus Flemish? Yeah. Probably, I would imagine Flemish people call it Duvel. Duvel. Some yes, something like that. And the one you're drinking, Errol, is probably Saint Bernard. Saint Bernard. <laughs> Then, I haven't okay. spoken Flemish in a long time. So. so would you would you recommend uh, we just not even try that? I mean, try all you want. It's fun, you know. <laughs> I want to encourage you to try pronunciating all those things. Also, I'm trying right. a beer and it's delicious. Hmm. Should we jump into the first round? Let's do it. Uh, so June is Pride Month in commemoration of the June 1969 riots in response to anti-gay police violence at the Stonewall Inn in New York. Uh, after President Trump made just one unofficial acknowledgement of Pride Month in his four years as president, the new administration was eager to set a new tone, uh, which I certainly appreciate, but uh, they, they didn't have to go as hard as they did. Now, so Kamala Harris over the weekend became the first sitting vice president to march in a pride parade. Uh, and Joe Biden, apparently in support of the trans community, is uh, abroad. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering about that. Also, did you see when she marched in the D.C. Pride Parade, there was like her Secret Service guy with the bowling shirt on in the background in the main photo? It was really I did see strong. that. He was like, I'm going to put on my Keens, and then I'm going to throw on my bowling shirt, and I'm going to go to Pride. We should do like a Secret Service or Boogaloo Boy contest. <laughs> yes. Um, 
weirdly, uh, for non-Pride Month news, we're going to go to Provincetown, Massachusetts, uh, where a lobster man named Michael Packard was swallowed whole before being spit out by a giant whale. Uh, when reached for comment, both Jonah from the Bible and Pinocchio called the news story crude and derivative. <laughs> Did you also see that this guy like survived a plane crash? Yeah, he's, he's, he's the most interesting man in the world right now. <laughs> I just, yeah, he, he needs to purchase like lots of uh, lottery tickets. But he also yeah, looked on. really happy on the picture that featured in the news. He did. Wouldn't you be? Yeah. Well, I guess, yes. I guess I would. <laughs> I mean, best thing best thing that's happened to him since the, since the Sox won the World Series, if you know what I mean. For sure. Um, over to some uh, biotech news. So Biogen's treatment for Alzheimer's received FDA approval despite fundamental questions about its effectiveness. The drug has been shown to slow the growth of the beta amyloid protein but not the most destructive symptoms of the disease like cognitive decline and memory loss. When asked why they didn't test against these symptoms, a spokesperson said they uh, forgot. Yeah, it seems uh, like this, that's, that's a bad thing to forget. <laughs> this, this, uh, this was a really interesting and, and obviously consequential story to follow um, throughout the week because like, right when the approval came through, there was a ton of excitement, just followed by a lot of deep outrage on this one. Natalie Shore of the New Republic wrote a piece called The Sleazy Story of How Biogen's New Alzheimer's Snake Oil Got Approved. Wow. The Alzheimer's Association called Biogen's $56,000 per year price tag for the drug simply unacceptable. Uh, an op-ed in the New York Times by two Harvard Medical School professors, one of whom, Aaron Kesselheim, just resigned in disgust from the FDA's advisory committee over the approval process for this drug, was titled simply, The FDA Has Reached a New Low. Safe to say, people are not happy. Has it? I don't follow the Alzheimer's beat. Is is this like the only snake oil that's been proposed vis-a-vis -vis Alzheimer's? The first treatment in like eighteen years that's been uh, approved, and obviously the ones the ones that have been out there historically have not been terribly effective. I've sort of had an evolution as I've been taking in more news on this over the week. Like my first thought was, from the perspective of companies I've worked in which is mostly tech companies. Um, you know, right now as part of my day job, I, I lead product development for a, a B2B software company called First 90. And, you know, we launched an iterate, right? Biogen still has to conduct large scale tests. That's going to take like nine years. If they're not effective, they'll pull the drug off the market. So if it might be effective, wouldn't you kind of want to get it into people's hands? Um, but then as I read more, I realized this is why we can't have tech people making actual big decisions. Uh, because like when you're dealing with side effects like you know brain hemorrhage and swelling, uh, massive price tag at massive scale that the public is actually on the hook for since about a third of Americans are on uh, government-provided health care, you know, the implications of lower standards uh, for this therapeutic area um, and others just uh, kind of come into focus, and, and it's not great. Yeah, I feel like medical decisions should not be in the hands of tech bros. Is that a bad thing to think? How dare well, you, Errol? <laughs> and not not that it was, but it, it I think was in the hands of some you know pharmaceutical industry lobbyists in this case, which is uh, maybe just as bad. Yeah, I mean it's it's almost as bad as the revolutionary. What was that story of of the woman who started that company who th they were going to do? Theranos. Um, Theranos. 
Yes. I like how I didn't even say like words, and you're like Theranos, definitely <laughs> Theranos. Well, it is quite uh, famous or infamous, I should say. Great yeah. documentary, great series of documentaries and podcasts, I might add. But yes, that's that's quite a big story that I think was justifiably encouraging a, a little bit of ire in people. Yeah, so on to um, some happier news. This Saturday, we celebrate Juneteenth, also called Emancipation Day, the anniversary of the date in 1865 when the Emancipation Proclamation that Abraham Lincoln had issued almost three years earlier finally became real for enslaved people in Texas and chattel slavery finally came to an end in the United States. Uh, I'll just say on this, if we can have a national holiday on Columbus Day when Europeans started enslaving people of color in America, maybe we should signal that we celebrate the end of slavery too and make Juneteenth a national holiday. Here, here. I think I saw the Senate today might have passed a resolution to make it a national holiday. You mean like they listened to this show in advance? Well, obviously, yes. They were teeing you up just for this. But I would fact check me on this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they just pass it. Oh, we don't fact check on News and Bruce. Oh, well then, um, but... I'll just say that very confidently then. Didn't we cancel Columbus Day? Wasn't that like a thing that we canceled? Well, I think we made it floating. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so they did. The Senate did unanimously pass a bill. So good on them. Good on them. I'm, I'm glad it was unanimous. That's, like, why is that surprising to me? Well, um, who, do you want to be that one person? If you're Josh well, Hawley, maybe. <laughs> I was going to say, I could think of one, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's on the same day that wasn't there a, a bill in Congress that was meant to celebrate the officers, the Capitol Police officers from the June 6th insurrection, and it, like, didn't pass or something because... There were people in Congress that didn't want to commemorate the role of the, you know, the valiant role of the Capitol Police. Again, totally butchering this, but um, it's it's definitely surprising that there was a unanimous consent on anything um, related to, to this. They didn't use trigger words or something. I don't know. It looks like last year, Ron Johnson was the one who blocked it. So that, that was the, the particular character in the cast, uh, but he dropped his objections this year. Charming. So, as News and Bruises resident sports reporter, which if you are a college buddy of mine, uh, you'll laugh at because while my friends would always have, you know, multiple screens of sports ball going, I would be sort of asking them the rules of baseball. But nevertheless, I am the, the News and Brews sports uh, reporter. And since we're talking about non-US things tonight, I thought I would talk about two things, the French Open and uh, the European Soccer Championship. So the French Open wrapped up this week, and oh boy, was it a good one for Eastern European tennis fans and people who like names with lots of consonants. So um, I'm going to grab hold of my beer here and attempt to pronounce all of the people who uh, were leading at uh, the French Open. So Czechia's Barbara... Krechikova beat Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova of Russia in the women's draw. And in the men's draw, Serbian world number one Novak Djokovic beat Stefanos Tsitsipas of Greece. Valiantly done with the pronunciation. Clap. Um, <laughs> Also in, the, in sports this week, uh, in what must be confusing for time travelers, the Euro 2020 soccer tournament kicked off. Get it, Mike? 
kick, they kicked up. They kicked up. Anyways. With you. Um, With you. Okay, good. First off, uh, we'd like to send a big news and bruise get well soon card to Danish midfielder Christian Eriksen, who, for those that have been paying attention, um, suffered a cardiac arrest during their match against Finland. <clears throat> I've honestly never seen something like this. I mean, he just collapsed on, on the field and they had to resuscitate him and it was really, really, really scary. Um, but I did see a tweet from him uh, smiling from his hospital bed today. He seems to be you know, doing a barrage of tests, but he seems to be doing okay um, and, and wished all of his teammates good luck in the rest of the tournament. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad he's feeling better. Also on uh, that, if you look up, if you look up some of the stories, um, really kind of inspiring reaction from uh, both the Finnish team and the crowd. Uh, the Finnish yeah. team kind of surrounded him and, and made sure that uh, as he was getting treatment, uh, he was out of view, um, you know, draped a flag over and, and made sure that, that he was protected. Uh, and then the crowd was, you know, beyond just kind of clapping when someone gets taken off the, the field, was chanting his name and, and just being um, really, like, classy and supportive about it. Um, just nice to see what uh, fans at matches can do when they're not busy, um, like, shouting racist epithets and things like that. Which is a thing that happens, um, for sure. Uh, you know, there well, was the some players controversy. do it, too. Yeah, totally. Sadly. Well, that's the most famous Zinedine Zidane headbutt came after a racist slur um, towards him back in the World Cup of, I don't remember which year. Oh, six. But, yeah, exactly. See, this is why we have you on the on the show, Donacia, uh, for, for your soccer knowledge, apparently. You know, the, the game actually was not without controversy because they, they left and then they came back after a few hours and, and played the rest of the match. And so there's lots of sort of ongoing debate in the soccer parts of the interwebs uh, about whether or not that was the right match. But I, I actually was sort of following the, the tournament for different reasons. And I'm just going to pretend like Turkey didn't lose badly to Italy and say that the most important match of the tournament to date from a soccer perspective was actually happened today, Tuesday. Uh, and it was decided by a German player scoring on his own goal, giving France a big first W. So that's from a soccer perspective. From a geopolitical perspective, however, uh, Belgium's absolute destruction of Russia definitely stands out uh, as an important moment. You are welcome. <laughs> you really brought that one home, Donacian. Thank you. <laughs> it, was, it was all due to me, of course. All right. And that leads us to our main story of the day. So this week is basically like Oprah's holiday episode for foreign policy nerds, right? You get a summit, and you get a summit, and you get a summit. <laughs> and in, in this analogy, uh, Oprah is Joe Biden on the first international trip of his presidency, and the you, you, and you are the G7 group of the wealthiest group of Western and Western-aligned countries, the NATO alliance of 24 North American and European countries, the EU, and for some reason that is not uh, entirely clear, Russia, as Biden will close out this trip with a bilateral U.S.-Russia meeting in Geneva. Um, <laughs> Putin's not, he's not invited to the Oprah show. That, that was just a mistake. <laughs> and, and, and just no longer invited to the, the G7, I guess. We, we called this room and this episode America's Back, mainly because Joe Biden won't stop saying that uh, as he's on this tour. It's clear that one of his main goals is to signal a departure from the isolationist policies and undiplomatic, uh, often unserious approach to diplomacy of his predecessor, um, but it's not at all clear that that messaging is aligned with the realities of geopolitics or the goals of even U.S. allies at these summits. 
So here to help us make sense of all this, once again, is Donatien Rui, Associate Fellow with the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, uh, where she researches the European Union, including Brexit, uh, Russian influence in Europe and Southern Europe and Mediterranean issues. Um, and I just wanted to call out that this uh, G7 summit in particular is all the more relevant uh, since it was being held in the UK. Donatien earlier this week published a piece called A Renewed U.S. Commitment to Peace in Northern Ireland. Uh, so definitely want to uh, make sure we touch on that. Donatien, thank you once again for being with us. Thank you so much, and thanks for plugging the piece. I really appreciate it. So what I thought I would do because there are so many summits, so many bilaterals, and if I, if you hear me say bilats, in the middle of this is what I mean. It's a bilateral meeting that Joe Biden had. So I, what I want to do is just first run through what I thought was the were the through lines across all of these summits, because you could tell that the U.S. team really had a plan going into this, and they had a list of things that they wanted to touch on because they came up in all of these meetings. So those issues, which are really across NATO, G7, EU, and even the bilat with the UK summit, were reaffirming values. So that goes from you know democratic values to rule of law. Uh, there's a big message of resilience, which is obviously tied primarily to COVID-19, but also to defense and security threats, economic shocks. And for your listeners, I would really recommend listening to last week's episode because Anna McCaffrey did a fantastic job running through the whole COVID-19 aspect, including piece of the G7, because they talked about this a lot. Additional issues that were common across the board were climate change. Uh, that was also included in the NATO summits, interestingly, because this can be a threat to the alliance in the long run. Russia and China had a very prominent role. And I think something that was really interesting to see and a good sign is that the importance of the inclusion of women and girls in all of these different strategies was also a through line in all of these summits. And then separately, just removing NATO from this piece on the G7, the EU and the UK side, they talked a lot about free and fair trade, taxation, economic recovery and growth, which makes sense after the massive shocks that we've all been through this past year and are likely to keep feeling in the coming months. So these are really the big issues that I wanted to touch on. That's it? All these summits. Yes. I mean, really small laundry list, I have to say. I mean, they probably had time to, to go out on the town in Cornwall, right? Well, they were in some really isolated uh, seaside towns, so I would say they probably had time to, like, go fishing, but not much more. <laughs> in Brussels, however, there's a lot more things to do. If I, I, I mainly I mainly just want, yes, that is absolutely true. I mainly just wanted to interject because my next-door neighbor, who is British, and she and I practiced how to say Cornwall. <laughs> um, so I had to, I had to put it in here. So, so Donatian, let's, let's start with, if we can, so there's lots of summits and, and you, you sort of went through the through lines of the G7, I think. Um, but, but the, it started actually with a meeting between president Biden and Boris Johnson, the prime minister of UK. Correct. Is that correct? Yes. Because as you know, as the host for the G7. I think he got first pick. And, you know, the special relationship, of course. Yeah, there were long walks on the beach, and there was lots of, you know, romance and, and other things that, that 
felt reasonably awkward well, to me, but I'm, I'm glad that the special relationship is back up and running. Understandably awkward, however, because even, even though we saw a lot of pictures where they were, you know, longingly looking into each other's eyes, in the past years, it hasn't been that smooth. Uh, I mean, going into the campaign, uh, President Biden made some statements, I think, about Boris Johnson, who were not necessarily that friendly. And over the past couple years, Boris Johnson was also very friendly to Donald Trump. So I think they did a good job tapering over these uh, potential divides at the summit, but it wasn't full bromance going into it, let's say. And, and, you know, Joe Biden has made no secret of his opposition to Brexit, and Boris Johnson has made no secret of his support for Brexit. Exactly. And so how did, how did they navigate that? Well, ahead of time, I mean, Joe, uh, President Biden made it clear that his priority when it came to the Brexit issue was to protect what we call the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement. That's just to recap very briefly, uh, Northern Ireland is a constituent country of the United Kingdom. And if people sometimes hear the word Great Britain, that's basically the main island. And then when you add Northern Ireland, you get the UK. It's been a part of the UK for decades, but because they created a border with the Republic of Ireland, there was a lot of tension among the communities there, primarily a Protestant community and a Catholic community. And the agreement in 1998, which was partly negotiated by the US under um, President Clinton, managed to in part settle the peace process in Northern Ireland. It has remained a somewhat shaky political agreement though, because the communities on the island don't always see eye to eye. And so President Biden, who has Irish roots and has not made a secret of that, uh, really came into this saying, this is what I care about, protecting the Good Friday Agreement. Now, why does he say that? It's because the Brexit negotiations have created a situation where the UK wants to stop following EU rules on trade and some services, but there's still trade on the island of Ireland and the European Union wants to be able to control what comes into its market, you know. But that would mean you create a trade border with customs and all this jazz on the island and you create tensions again. So that's kind of the gist of it. Is that what you covered in your, your recent piece? Can you talk a little bit about the piece? This is the, this is the time where we plug your excellent research. Oh, thank you. Yes, the recent piece talks a little bit about what happened, the protagonists and the process over the past 20 years. The core of it was really to try to give some recommendations on how the U.S. could re-engage in both the peace and the political process because it's still viewed as a very powerful neutral party in Northern Ireland, whereas the U.K. Uh, government at this point is not really, at least in the Catholic community or the pro-Republican community in Northern Ireland. So it was really trying to first give people a lot of background on how we got here, why certain things have changed and what's, why certain things have not. And my main recommendation is for the U.S. to basically follow two tracks. One is to try to mitigate the tensions between the EU and the U.K. because they have serious impact on Northern Ireland and its stability. And the second track is to re-engage with actors within Northern Ireland. So that's the different parties there, but also civil society and groups that have been trying to mitigate inter-community tensions. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. So walk us forward a little bit. So you, you talked about the through lines 
at the G7. The G7 lasted for three days, and it resulted in, and we've already used this word, and I'm going to use it as many times as possible on the podcast, a really long communique. Um, <laughs> communique, love that word. What's your sort of back of the envelope? It's only been out for a couple of days, but you know, what, what, what are your main takeaways from, from the context for listeners? It's 14,000 words. This communique is crazy. It's, it's 25 pages, yes. <laughs> did you did you seriously put it in a Word document and do a word count? No, I saw the Atlantic Council's summary that was saying we're going to oh. make this easier for you to understand. But <laughs> instead of actually summarizing anything, they just they annotated it. So they're just adding oh, more no. words. What are they thinking? Seems less than ideal. So let's do what they should have done. And Donacien, tell us what what's your analysis coming out of the, the G7 communique? Uh, well, first, I think... The top line is that similar to the through lines I ran through earlier about all these summits, there are so many things in a statement. It covers a ton. And I think what we're going to need to keep in mind is there are many dialogues, many working groups that have been announced here, but we're all going to need, and by we, I mean people in the policy community, we're going to need to follow closely on what the actual deliverables are and whether there will be implementation of the many, many pledges that were in there. I think personally, obviously, for people's immediate lives, the statements and pledges on COVID-19 were a great sign. I think they understand how much pressure is on all of them to deliver for the rest of the world now that their own populations are getting vaccinated at higher rates. I think what was interesting, and my just gut check on this, I do not have contact with anybody who was there, but representatives of the EU were there. And I could imagine that they saw the UK and the US making you know, grand statements about, we're gonna donate this much and we're gonna donate that much. And the EU has actually been exporting doses for months now. The EU has been saying, yes, but we're waiting for the UK and the US to start exporting. So now that means everybody's on the same page, which is a good step. There, w- there was some eyebrow raising perhaps? Uh, I didn't look at the the body language, but there are <laughs> statements I think that were made uh, later, if anything, probably in the US EU communicator statement that kind of alluded to that. What do they do at these summits if not raise eyebrows? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, hold hands and look very <laughs> serious. Do you, do you have a sense? So I, I saw some mixed commentary on the, the COVID pledge. And when Anna was on our show last week, she threw out a benchmark of, you know, we're really looking for a billion doses between now and the end of the year, maybe even up to 2 billion. And what they actually committed to was a billion doses over the next year. So rather than the next six months, mm-hmm. this is sort of the next 12. How is that being received or perceived uh, across you know, any of the media you're tracking? Is it enough? Is it seen as a useful first step? Or is it seen as just sort of a half measure that's not going to get us where we need to be. My understanding of it and recognizing I'm not a global health expert is it's tentatively positive, but there's still a recognition that it's not enough. There were also statements in there about improving supply chains and health security, global health systems. So I think if they can, if they can work on those two tracks, it might be a more positive picture. But I also agree that I don't think it's quite enough. And there I think it may be in the EU statement, 
they encourage other donors to also participate. Speaking of supply chains, one of the things that really stuck out to me, uh, I, I mentioned to someone earlier that I did not read all 14,000 words. <laughs> However, I did I did a serious amount of control effing in the, in the document. And the word corruption actually doesn't come up a, a whole lot, but there is talk, especially in the infrastructure section, about good governance and transparency and all these sort of backdoor ways of saying, let's have a way of building infrastructure that the world needs without doing it the Chinese way, which is sort of code. You know, they didn't say that, of course, they're much more diplomatic than I am here on News Brews. But, you know, there was this sort of implicit counter, which when we talk about the NATO stuff in in a few minutes, I think becomes a little bit more explicit when we get to the NATO conversation. But at least for the G7 communique, there was this implicit, you know, we need to focus on good governance and, you know, we will make high standards they start using. And so do you share that analysis, Donatien, about the sort of focus on corruption and or do you have a different take on why that played so prominently? No, I I agree with you. I think it's the word itself might not have been that present in this specific communique, but first it it was very prominent in some of the other statements and also in the White House, this Build Back Better World initiative that they've announced. Actually, some colleagues of ours at CSIS have just published a really good piece on that. And it, it really is an infrastructure focused effort that tries to set good standards for massive infrastructure projects because they recognize the need across the world and especially the developing world for good infrastructure that is not subject to corruption, but also, you know, infrastructure projects that make economic sense. Because in our area, for example, in the Balkans, we've seen some projects that were popular for politicians because it looks good to build a bridge somewhere or some kind of railway, but it doesn't always make economic sense because... Maybe no one's going to travel that road or no one's going to take that bridge. So there's a whole list of specific standards and criteria that they're looking at and trying to get uh, cleaner finance as well for all of these projects. And as you said, there's definitely a China angle to it. But I think there's also a recognition that this message of corruption just resonates really well, both across the world and domestically, since we've heard so much about, you know, President Biden's foreign policy for the middle class. This is kind of a winner message for everyone. Right. I want to move on um, to the to the EU and then NATO sort of Brussels-based stuff. But just one last note on the G7. You know, we titled this clubhouse and, and the podcast America's Back. And America's Back literally in the first sentence of the communique. I don't know if y'all noticed, but it says, we, the leaders of the Group of Seven, met in Cornwall, et cetera, et cetera, to beat COVID-19 and build back better. Oh, I it's mean, everywhere. Literally, they use the campaign slogan uh, or the transition slogan of the, the Biden-Harris administration. But interestingly, in, in, Boris Johnson has been using that same expression for months as well. Smart guy. So I'm, I'm interested, before we move on to the other summits, on kind of how how successful this play was at the G7 to, to sort of reestablish American influence to some extent, mm-hmm. right? Donacian, you may know that both Errol and I have young kids. And to me, the G7 looks a lot like a group of toddlers, like a, a preschool class. And maybe, maybe the collective <laughs> noun is a, a chaos of toddlers. Um, yes. And there's, 
there's always the one kid, right, who just doesn't play well with others. Like, maybe he's four years old and still bites people. Maybe she never quite took to potty training. Maybe she's spending all her time on the playground eating dirt by herself. Anyway, uh, that kid basically got put in charge of the class for the last four years. And now he's not there anymore, and that's great. But now it's just like a bunch of toddlers who have been trying to placate the fox in their own hen house for four years. And they haven't been learning the alphabet or like the days of the week, which in this analogy would be like combating climate change and the pandemic. So have, have they gotten back on their feet? Are they moving in the same direction aggressively enough for the challenges at hand? And, and is the U.S. where it wants to be in that movement? Well, first, I think some of those leaders would probably resent or let's say dispute the premise that they haven't followed up on any of those things in the last four years. They've tried, certainly. I think some of them have managed some of it, too, especially when you think about things like Iran or climate change goals. The EU has done a ton on that front, on the digital aspect as well. Let me, let me just clarify and say I really appreciate that you think in my analogy where I called all the leaders of the free world toddlers that they would resent uh, that, like, <laughs> lack, oh, lack yeah, of progress. Oh, yeah, I mean, that was... <laughs> acknowledging that uh, that there there have been efforts to try and yet the largest actor in the system has been actively working against these shared interests for all of that time yes that that's completely true and i think some of the european leaders will also recognize that in some instances they do need u.s leadership or at least u.s cooperation on some of those goals i think some other members, probably like Canada and Japan, are more willing to say that out loud. There's been a lot of conversations inside Europe recently about how much we want to recognize how important U.S. leadership was. But I agree with the general assessment. It is probably a relief in many of those capitals to see this president come in. I mean, in his own words, it's what he said today, which is, Europe is our natural partner. And those other toddlers haven't heard that in four years. And sometimes, you know, it's in any relationship, mm -hmm. you need affirmation. And I think they really got it at this meeting. Just look at how beaming uh, President Macron was in his press conference with President Biden. So I think they really welcome this comeback. On the flip side, I think the, the U.S. is coming back to a situation where it has room to shape certain initiatives but then there are some aspects where it will have to kind of jump on the trains. And what I'm thinking of specifically, for example, is things like digital standards. Because the EU has just kept going, internally has, it has set um, shorter and shorter timelines for some of the climate and green transition goals. So it's, it's a bit of a mix on how much the U.S. can shape coming back in. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and I think one of the things that I've been thinking about is this America is back construct. The lazy thing to say in Washington right now is, oh, what does that mean? Actions speak louder than words, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I do think there's a good question to be asked about re-engagement in the multilateral system and with our bilateral friends and allies is, is absolutely a good thing in my personal opinion and, and certainly something that is long overdue. But when we take that a little bit further into is that system going to deliver given the challenges that we face today, pandemic, uh, climate change, et cetera, I think that those simple re-engagement and glowing statements with Macron and others are not going to to get us there. And so that 
that sort of trite actions speak louder than words, I think does actually resonate. And, and I think our friends and allies are very happy that we're back. But I think this is why there's a question mark in addition to an exclamation point in the title of today's episode. Absolutely. I mean, I think I mentioned that at the beginning. There's so many dialogues and initiatives and God knows what that were announced in there. We're all going to follow whether that's implemented. And especially a bunch of people in the U.S. and in Europe who, um, shocker, do not have time to read 14,000 words in <laughs> some communique of a group they've probably not heard of that much. They're going to want to see results. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, we, we were batting around, you know, do we include G7 in the title? And we, <laughs> I think subconsciously we were like, you know what, we already we have five listeners and we don't want to go down to four. Right, because like fair. we're gonna lose people. <laughs> but I think the um, title is interesting because I would say Biden went to Europe with like America's back exclamation point, and Europeans on the other side were like America's back question mark. Back? Yeah. No, totally. Um, absolutely agree. So, so part of this trip was Brussels. Uh, I just was looking, and Joe Biden has actually landed in Geneva, so mm-hmm. it was sort of you know, the UK, and then he went to to Brussels, and now he's in Geneva. But before we get to the final stage of this trip, which is the the Putin-Biden summit in in Geneva, there were two major things that I could see that he did in Brussels. He had a US-EU summit, and then he had a NATO summit, because apparently it's the week of summitry. So dealer's choice, Donacien, which one are you following or want to talk about next or is it worth just talking about both of them at the same time well first i'm offended that you left off the list the meeting he had with our king (laughs) which obviously is top of the list uh no obviously not um but (laughs) i think let's start with the pleasantries were observed (laughs) yes and i'm sure some of you listeners will be like belgium has a king but why king what (laughs) let's just say eyebrows maintained an appropriate altitude in that meeting (laughs) Yes, I'm sure it was all very courteous. I'm not sure that listeners also know that Belgium was without a government for like 500 days about a decade ago. I know. Um. <laughs> well, we did it again last last year, I guess. But you won in soccer, yay. Yeah, that's a start. And we are a very humble people. You know, we don't ask for much. Just the seat of European power, you know. They gave it to us. Why don't we start with the EU? Sounds good. So... At this summit, there was also just a huge sigh of relief, I think, on the European side, because as much as the former U.S. president talked a lot about, you know, getting stuff out of NATO, he still reaffirmed at the end of the day Article 5 and collective defense. Against the EU, however, it was not as smooth, and there was very little positive engagement in the relationship so can we just pause yes right there for a second so you mentioned article five and just so people know you mentioned collective defense but in the nato treaty it's basically like if you are a signatory of the nato treaty then if any one of us 24 members of nato are attacked then we will come to the collective defense of that member who is attacked And so this is sort of like the foundational tenet of the NATO treaty. And so for Biden to reaffirm that is actually a really important point because Trump sort of evaded doing so. But at the working level, it still was just fine. And I will do the nerdy thing and correct to say there are 30 members of the alliance. Oh, there are 30. On the EU side, however, relationships 
were not smooth for four years. And it is really a relief uh, to see an administration that at least somewhat understands how the EU works, which granted is really complicated, so you really can't blame people. But the main focus of this particular communique, which was only seven pages, so kudos, obviously a huge space for COVID-19, vaccination efforts, uh, supply chain task force, reform of the World Health Organization, which is obviously very much in the news these days as well. And for those who want to travel, there is going to be a working group on um, reopening safe travel. So TBD on where that goes. And working then, groups fix things in the way that News and Brews fixes things. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. Are, am I not here to fix things? Oh, no, you are. Exactly. I have that, been we'll, misinformed. We'll, we'll call it out at the end. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. I mean, Anna McCaffrey's episode last week led to the pledge of a billion vaccines. So. Oh, great. Honestly, Maybe... no, you know, no pressure, Nancy. Okay. I'll, I'll try to live up to that. <laughs> but, yes, I, point taken on the working group. Let's just say at least they're talking about it. It's a start, perhaps. Uh, another piece that totally. is of particular importance to me, is at least for what I look at when I look at Europe, is reaffirming just support for democratic values, human rights, and rule of law. Um, there has been, obviously, a lot of debate in the U.S. press recently around these things, you know, media freedom, but in the European Union as well, there's been a lot of concerns around democratic backsliding in some specific member states, including, I mean, media freedom is a problem as well, concentration of media empires in some places and corruption is a huge um, issue of concern as well. Related to that, for example, the US recently sanctioned some Bulgarian officials and oligarchs for basically abuse of power and corruption. So there is movement on that, and I think that's a really welcome sign that both sides are recognizing this as just one of the big, big issues of our time because Ultimately, a lot of the issues that we deal with are downstream from corruption and governance issues. So when you think about environmental degradation, for example, some of the times that's because somebody before ended up using funds and misappropriating them. So this, this focus on democratic values and anti-corruption, I think, is a really important piece. Obviously, they talked about climate change. That was something the EU has been waiting for basically four years to be able to do again and wait for the U.S. to come back into the Paris Agreement. There is some other high-level action group announced in there, and there were, there were many, many in the statements. I'm not going to go through all of them because question mark on what, where that would lead. Obviously, there's a lot of conversation about trade uh, and tech cooperation. I'm sure you've seen the U.S. press was very focused on this aircraft subsidy case. Yeah, It's been going that. on for 17 years and nobody can agree. And I will say it was very prominent in the press, but people need to understand that it's kind of hitting pause on the issue for five years. So it's So not this is basically, hmm. Boeing is a huge American manufacturer and Airbus is the huge European manufacturer and they, there was an escalating series for 17 years. There's been an escalating series of, I'm going to provide a subsidy for my company. And no, I'm going to provide a subsidy for mine. No, I'm going to, you know, have some trade restrictions and stuff and just kind of like tit for tat escalated. And so at the very least, we, like you said, don't see, and at least we have a pause for five exactly. years. 
What was interesting to me is that that seemed to be just a heavy focus of the U.S. press, but this trade part actually contained other stuff. One, worryingly, the what we called the 232, so the tariffs on steel and aluminum that were started under President Trump. The resolution of that question is pushed to the end of the year, so they didn't really get anything done on that front. But there's a lot of debate and just a lot of work that is going to be done on creating compatible standards and regulations, which currently, especially in the digital, digital sphere, is a bit of a debate on the U.S. and EU sides. Uh, they're starting a trade and tech council, and one phrase that I think is going to be important is for a common effort for a democratic model of digital governance. There's so much going on in the digital sphere and not just things like e-commerce and trade flows like that, but just so many conversations around privacy, misinformation, surveillance too of citizens. I think this focus on a democratic model of governance is something to really welcome. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. I want to get I'll that. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely drink to that. We don't have to wait for the, the like, toast, do we? Um, Open enough. We'll get to the Russia summit in a little bit, you know, so we can, you know, toast uh, or, or not um, during that. But so I want to get to the NATO summit real briefly and then and then talk about uh, the impending meeting with, with Putin. And then I'd love to, to open it up to any folks in the in the clubhouse room for, for any comments. But so on the NATO side, Donacian, what are you – I mean, for me, this was all about China. Uh, at least that's what the coverage was. What's your main takeaway from that NATO summit? Well, it seemed all about China, but even if you do a word search, Russia is overwhelmingly still the main challenge, uh, at least in the communique, but also just in the mood in general among the 30 members. China wasn't called an enemy or an adversary. It was called presents systemic challenges and threat to our security. But Russia is overwhelmingly still the real threat to collective defense. So I agree with you, the coverage both on the US and the European press was very focused on China. But I would suggest that people remember Russia is mentioned a lot more often in this in this communique. And what's the what's the lingering concern over over Russia? Are they gonna invade Ukraine again or is there, you know, meddling or, or what's sort of the focus of NATO at, at a very high level? Definitely threats to territorial integrity is a continuing concern for the entire alliance, which is also why President Biden had specific meetings with the Baltic states, for example, because he wants to reaffirm that NATO will defend the eastern flank, what we call the eastern flank, which is basically east of Europe that is bordering Russia. So territorial integrity is a concern. Cyber attacks featured prominently as well, and we can get into that a little bit um, in the Russia summit. I believe we'll talk about this tomorrow. But the cyber concerns were definitely there. Also just what we've been calling hybrid threats. So things that are under the threshold of some cyber operations are contained in that. But there's also disinformation efforts the U.S. is quite familiar with some of these attacks on democracy. That's partly why Russia is still considered the main challenge is because it really has this full spectrum threat picture. I think that is a good transition to the last leg of the trip, which is the bilateral meeting with Russia between Biden and Putin in Geneva. And I think the big question I have on this is why? 
why why is this part of this trip? Is it clear what the U.S. hopes to get out of this meeting and why it has risen to the level of these other major summits happening on the first trip by the taking as president? Well, on, on the why, I think it's not entirely clear. It was made a tiny bit clearer with some of the background press gaggles that they had today on their way to Geneva. I think they're just trying to not reset, because if you say reset, the Russia community in D.C. will go crazy. Yeah, PTSD. Exactly. <laughs> so that's not what I want to say, but just kind of a stock-taking moment. My guess is there's probably part of a personality thing, too, that President Biden wants to be in front of President Putin to have these conversations. It doesn't seem to me that they have very specific deliverables for this, or at least his team has not said so. So there's not a specific laundry list of things they're trying to accomplish. It's more stock-taking and seeing where they can find small areas of common interest. I'm not sure what those are. Probably so the, security in the Arctic, but who knows. The, the personality thing is so interesting. There's this famous story from 2014 when Biden was vice president and met face-to-face -face with Putin, uh, where they were in the room, and, and this only came out later as uh, I think part of the transcript or a first-hand account or something. Um, but Biden was calling back to George W. Bush, uh, saying famously that he looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul. And Biden looks at Putin and says, I'm looking into your eyes, and I don't think you have a soul. And Putin's response is, then we understand each other. <laughs> so if nothing else, we can hope that, that the, the meeting of those personalities will yield some more theatrics and, and we can all enjoy it down the road. Do they you, know each other. That's also, I think, something that's going to be interesting. You mentioned security in the Arctic. Do you have any other predictions or, or hopes for what you think might come out of these meetings? Oh, hopes? Ooh, that's a tough one. My hope is that it doesn't get worse, I guess. That's the first step. Uh, I do hope they manage to talk about the cyber aspect and just the ransomware element of at least trying to find some common ground or the beginning of some common ground on rules of the road, which that is one topic we know for sure they will be talking about because that's what his team talked about today. And I think that's super important, especially for critical infrastructure. I mean, we have seen many examples in the past few weeks. But other than that, it could really span the gamut. They'll probably talk about Belarus, but I can't see anything positive coming out of that. So my hope is really just on the cyber stuff because I don't see what else um, comes out of this. But one thing that's interesting to me is in this press gaggle today, his team said that they were going to have four to five hours of talks in the afternoon it starts that. around one the whole thing that is a long time with no that, food just like tea or something i mean that well and vodka i mean it's, it has to be <laughs> some sort not. just to clarify for for the viewers i think on belarus belarus it's i think biden will probably voice an objection to the hijacking of a plane a ryanair plane uh, that was forced to land and russia you know, gave rave reviews to the Belarusian dictator um, having having hijacked that plane that led to the arrest of an opposition figure. And I've, I've been seeing it referred to as high stakes but low expectations. <laughs> and that, that seems to be the, the going uh, analysis or headline. And, and I think that that's probably accurate. I, I also like your kind of do no harm <laughs> uh desire here Dancian. 
Like, let's just not make it worse, guys. Let's open lines of communication. And and I think going back to Mike's quote by both Biden and and Putin, I think that there's a clear eyed. I think the reason that the reset word, you know, gives people in D.C. the heebie-jeebies is because, you know, there was there was this assumption that there was going to be a, a sort of credible good faith counterpart in in that reset and and i think that that's um just sort of proven to be not the case and so i think oh, we're, 100%. we're we're a little bit more clear-eyed i would say maybe a lot more clear-eyed in in how our approach is but i think one thing i do want to mention when we talk about first russia but also china since it's just china all the time these days and the Belgian press actually mentioned the Washington's China obsession, so it's out there. I think something this administration and probably its European partners really understand is that the best way to counter this is to clean up at home, which is why they're talking so much about corruption or anti-corruption, I should say, our values, democracy, media freedom, is because they understand how much there is to do at home first. I mean, the when you look at rankings for freedom of the world, freedom of the press, it's not looking good for a lot of these places, including EU member states, the UK itself. And, and there's so much to do before you can actually once again be a convincing voice on this world stage, which is also, I will say why, at the G7 they invited, for some of the meetings, uh, they invited India, uh, South Africa, Australia and South Korea, I would say before we start talking about a bigger group, let's let's do all the cleanup we need to do. There's a ton of work. And that's, as I said earlier, that's something that really speaks to people. And even if you think about Russia, if you're trying to do kind of a counteroffensive on the soft power front, being able to point to home and say, look, we've done a ton of effort to, you know, clean up the illicit finance sector, all the shell companies, and the fact that your oligarchs hide their money in our financial systems now we want to return that and help you fight this corruption speaking of oligarchs mike uh said bulgarian oligarch earlier and i feel like that should be some sort of secret code word that we have it'll make a great band name too it would be the bulgarian oligarchs that'd be like an emo band when we start talking emo we know it's time to open it up to some other voices (laughs) Uh, anyone anyone else in the room hey there Hey, Jonathan. I will say Bulgaria, Bulgarian oligarch has been my safe word for years. So that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> my question is about, so this question mark, America's back, it seems like a big question mark is, and, and skepticism about America being back, is that there is so much uncertainty about what could happen in the 2024 election and I you know I feel like certainly in my lifetime I I don't think I realized how much you know how volatile our own democracy and our own voice could be in the world you know even switching between Clinton and to Bush to to Obama you know you sort of think that all these folks will be playing together there'll be some differences but you know we got through differences with Gerhard Schroeder and and the you know, Chirac and, and, and got through all that. But, but now there's this real skepticism, fear, I would say, um, just an unknown of, of what our own democracy is going to do. And, you know, because our democracy probably 
at best uh, is sclerotic and at worst is, uh, you know, deeply malignant. How do all of these other world powers, you know, obviously they're, they're happy to, happier to work with the Biden administration. They want to move forward where they can, but at the same time, like, still trying to figure out, okay, what do we do and how do we move forward together if in 2024 we get a return of Trump or a return of one of his acolytes or someone who's made himself or herself in in his image? How do you sort of move through this skepticism, not just of the moment, but this skepticism about what you could be able to do in the future as a world community? Thanks for the question, Jonathan. I think that optimistic takes like these are always my favorite. On the European side, something I always try to explain to people in a uh, non-European uh, explaining way, I guess, is that there's there's been really good, obviously, close alliance at the political level for decades between the U.S. and the EU and other European countries. But there's long also been a bit of a... Um, let's say, an anti-American undercurrent in the population. People love American pop culture and soft power, but there's, at least even among my friends in Belgium, there's the sense of like, oh, America can be really arrogant, and they're like, oh, we're the beacon on the hill. So there's always been a little bit of that, and the past four years have really turned that up. So it's it's gonna it's just going to take time, and a lot of... Um, trips like we just saw to kind of dial that back down. So that's kind of the context in which this works. Second, EU member states have actually kind of shown what they plan to do if in 2024 things change again, which I'm sure some people who follow Europe have probably heard a lot about this strategic autonomy plan. But regardless of the, the label you put on it, the idea, I think, in the next few years is gonna be a two-track approach. The first track is to do as much as we can while someone like President Biden is in power, which is also why you see all these summits have so many things that they wanna do because they're like, this is our chance, let's do all the things. And then at the same time, I think they're gonna try to secure some of these gains so that they're untouchable by the time the next person comes around. Uh, some of them will be because that's just the nature of politics and some of these international institutions as well. So I think it's going to try to, what they're going to try to do is really play on both sides and just go full steam ahead for the moment. And then in the meantime, just prepare for a situation where we have to deal with that again. And remember that just like the U.S. president is accountable to his population U.S. Um, EU leaders and some other uh, G7 leaders are also responding to domestic demands. So when their own population are saying, well, why are we following the U.S.? Or, you know, they changed leaders again and this one's problematic or whatever that is, they're going to have to switch track again. And they'll probably not wait around as much as they did for the last four years. Because if they see two of the same, and by the same I mean two of, Trump, for example, within 12 years, um, we're going to see a bigger shift away from the U.S. than we saw the first time around. Yeah, thank you so much. That makes a lot of sense. Appreciate it. Donna Cien, thank you so, so much for joining us, sharing your uh, your 
research and knowledge and wisdom with us. Errol, any final thoughts? I think we fixed it, Mike. I think we fixed all the symmetry and all the communiques and we edited them in on the fly and, you know, News and Brews delivers again. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you both so all much right. for having me. Thanks, Sonatian. Really appreciate you coming. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. News and Brews recordings have been live on Clubhouse each Tuesday evening at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Join the live conversation by following News and Brews on Clubhouse or listen to the podcast available on all major podcast platforms. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yabokay. Our guest today was Donna Cianrui of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Our producer is Alana Nemitz. Thanks for listening. Thank you.